Oh, man. <laughs> How many of you, that was a first in church for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this is Matt Hutter, and this is Caleb Kresge, uh, Ryan Kresge's brother. And uh, I've known about this for a long time. Just give him a hand. Yeah. Even, even for you, man, with, with your brother losing their baby this week, I thought, man, the timing of even knowing you were going to do this before and just what this means for you and your family, um, we're with you um, in the sorrow of that. God, we do celebrate your great grace, and we need your grace to fill the Kresge family today, to fill many people's lives today. We've sung about it, we've concentrated on it, we've celebrated it in communion, and I pray that you would just now bring us to a space and a place where our souls are fertile and ready to hear your word, and uh, it's really that grace we're all leaning into tonight, we're needing to experience tonight the grace of rest, the grace to have the ability to figure out how to let you whisper peace be still to the winds and waves of our soul in the culture in which we live that makes us so antsy and anxious. So just with your grace, just may your spirit of calm hover over this place as it hovered over the waters in creation. And we pray this in your son's name and everyone said, Amen. You can have a seat. I want a kilt so bad <laughs> after I saw that. Um, I don't know if they got anything on underneath that, but uh, I've heard. I've watched Braveheart, so I'd have, maybe not. But. How's everybody doing tonight? Tonight we're finishing up Death to Selfie, and um, we're going to talk about rest in a world of distraction. And uh, these are the times where I feel less like a, a preacher, motivational speaker, give you a shot in the arm, and more of a, a shepherd, pastor, um, where trying to get a flock of people to still waters and green pastures to make them lie down so that their souls can be restored uh, is what my pastoral heart just desires for all of us tonight. I was uh, at the coffee shop. I'm there a lot. It's like my office every morning. It was about a month ago. And um, I do crazy stuff. Sometimes I'll wake up just with an idea and that I'm going to smile at everybody that day. Or that I'm going to hug everybody I meet that day. Or uh, this particular day was I'm going to ask everybody that I meet to shake their hand and ask them how they're doing. And so a couple people had come into the coffee shop. It was about probably seven that morning. And I asked both of them, hey, how, how are you doing today? And one was like, oh, I've been so, so busy. I need my cup of coffee. I'm so busy. 
And uh, so we talked for a little bit. The next person came in, and I went up, hey, how are you doing? And this person, um, it was this guy, and he said, I am busier than a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. <laughs> Just so busy. And I'm like, one-legged man in it. That would be pretty busy. <laughs> and the, th the third one I went up to, and I shook their hand. And I said, well, how are you doing today? And they were like, oh, man. And I said, well, let me guess. You're really busy. And they said, how did you know? Did my wife tell you? And I said, no, it's a 50-50 shot that you're either really busy or life's really hard. You don't even really have to be a prophet. It's so rare for me to hear somebody say, I'm really good. Really busy. Really hard. Or the way that it's mentioned these days in different writings is like, I can't even. I mean, I just can't even. It's just, I, oh. Uh, okay, you can't even finish that sentence. And this isn't just a 21st century thing or an industrial age thing or a technological age thing or an information age thing. This is an age to age thing, world without end thing. I, I was reading Socrates in the fourth century and he said this, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. And I'm thinking, what did they have to do in the fourth century? <laughs> compared to the variety, the myriad of things that are offered at our fingertips every day. And he's like, you can be busy in the fourth century. I'm like, how much exponentially worse is it these days that there's a barrenness to a busy life? It's this weird way that it makes you feel important. And then if you're resting, that you're somehow useless. And if you're busy you're really important. It's just not true. I was reading an article on 10 signs that you might need a day off. And um, I wanted to read you some of these. I got a kick out of some of them. One is you consider quitting on the spot at least once a day. <laughs> Or you ignore 50% of your emails. Anybody relate? You have nightly work nightmares. You're seriously thinking about an extended stay with your parents. You cancel all social plans on account of being exhausted. How many have done that? Just like, I wanted to go out until today happened. Or I'm just, I'm maxed out. Six, you have insomnia when you're not experiencing work-related nightmares. You're up to eight cups of coffee a day and still can't focus. You pick fights with your partner every morning and then again at night. Some of these are real. You put your headphones in at 9 a.m. and don't take them off until 6 p.m. And this last one really got me. You think about the benefits of breaking your dominant arm. <laughs> That's called insurance fraud, but it is an idea. Like, you know, I could get off work for two weeks if I just slam a cobblestone into my wrist, no? 
I remember writing in my journal about the tyranny of the urgent one day on my day off, and this was eight years ago. I, I knew I had written something, and I went back in my journal, and at the top left-hand corner in capitalized letter, letters, it said, my day off. And I just took a couple excerpts of that journal entry. I said this, it's my day off, a day to turn off and go off. A day that says off is good and on is bad. A counterintuitive day that declares war against all that speaks of production, productivity, and cranking out product. A Sabbath from busyness and business, a respite, an oasis, and a refuge. But we live in a world crazed with the idea that busyness is noble, the highest moral ethic of mankind. We have an addiction to addition, one thing after another, one activity leading into another without space in between, more upon more, enough never being enough. How do I know that this civilization is obsessively, compulsively addicted to manic energy and performance-enhanced self-importance? Well, I'm an addict myself who goes into withdrawal given small amounts of free time with nothing to do. They say it takes one to know one. I get fidgety, I get antsy, and unnerved with free time or downtime, and my days off are often spent as a stir-crazy rehabilitant trying to kick his habit, itching my crawling skin, pacing around, fighting off phantom feelings, chewing my nails down to the cuticle, and nervously tapping my foot on the ground, nursing my restless leg syndrome. The reason I don't think people want to take a day off is they're scared to find out how crazy their life really is. Maybe how crazy they really are. Scary crazy. So they busy themselves to distract themselves from themselves. Eight years ago, I wrote that. The effects of our culture's busyness are all around us. People are irritable, they're hurried, they're preoccupied, they're heavy, they're frantic, they're anxious, they're exhausted, overwhelmed, dissatisfied, and downright uptight. And on some days, there's just no rest for the weary, it would seem. And I find myself asking, Who, who's gonna stop the madness? Like, who in my life will stop this maddening pace? or help me stop it. And over and over again, I come back to Jesus because it seems to me that he's the only sane voice in my life on most days. It's Jesus who sees us. It's, it's Jesus who frees us in this place. And we see this instinct in Jesus throughout the gospels, throughout his life, but one text I kept returning to this week is found in Matthew 9 where he encounters harried humanity and enters into the pressure points of the moment, feeling the weight of it all with these sheep that he called them. It says in Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that's a deadly combination because if you feel harassed and you feel helpless, that means you're sort of powerless to get out of the paranoia. I, I, I picked a couple different words in case harassed and helpless may not fit you. What about paranoid and powerless? What about fearful 
and fragile. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel attacked by life and anxious? Do you ever feel violated and then vulnerable? This is what Jesus saw when he looked out at these crowds. He saw these crowds, it says in Matthew 9, 36, and he had compassion on them. The word compassion in the Greek is splonkna. You feel it down here in your gut, like your gut twists and turns, and you're moved deep inside. And you feel this ache for people. Are you glad Jesus, to this day, it's not a blow-by It's not a one-off. You're not just one of many. He can see you, and he sees you so that he can free you. He knows what you're going through, and he'll stop and feel it. And he felt this compassion, and he saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. And that just sort of, I locked into that because, I don't know, I've been asking a question as a 44-year-old, who do I look up to and who's looking out for me? I mean, is there anyone to look up to that will shepherd me, that will come find me, that knows when I'm harassed and helpless and violated and vulnerable and paranoid and powerless? Like, would anybody even know that that was happening in my life? And you know, I become so good at covering it up that I can't blame anyone if they didn't know. Because I know how to like mask the exterior from the interior. But that's what I love about Jesus is he just sees right through the mask and he knows the condition of our souls. Just where's the sage? Where's the mentor? We're the leaders to calm us and shepherd us out of the vexation and violence of life's demands. And we need help. We need a shepherd to sense our stress and our strain and lead us to those green pastures and still waters and and restore our souls today. Where's that voice? Where is that peaceful, non-anxious presence? Not long after that story in Matthew 9, if you keep reading in Matthew, it comes to Matthew 11, and Jesus doesn't just recognize the harassment with compassion. He actually speaks into it, offering a solution and even an invitation. And he says in chapter 11, come to me, all you are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wouldn't you like to meet a person like that? Rather than somebody, you meet them and it's just full of nervous energy and it just makes you feel sort of manic yourself. And I just love, this is actually one of few passages where Jesus describes his presence, his personality to us. We wonder why so many people are drawn to Jesus and he just gives us like key words about his presence, describing himself. And this was his invitation to come to me and to become 
like me. Now, there's a lot of people that are like, I want you to follow me. And you're like, but I don't want to be like you. But he says, when you come to me, you could become like this, because this is how and who I am. And I got to thinking how Jesus describes his heart is restful, gentle, humble, easy, and light. That is, his presence isn't hurried, it's restful. It isn't harsh, it's gentle. It's not haughty, it's humble. It isn't heavy, it's easy. It's not light or hard, it's lighthearted. It's easygoing. Those are the people I'm drawn to. And he says, and you'll find rest for your soul. Come, you who are wearied and heavy laden. Come, the harassed and helpless. I got compassion for you. I want you to come to me. I want you to become like me. This is what I'm like. Now, it's hard for me to read these verses and then just wonder if we're becoming like Jesus. Because when I look at the distinctives of Christianity and what would distinguish us from the world, when you meet a Christian that is in the presence of Christ and they've come to Jesus and they're becoming like Jesus, your presence should become more restful and gentle and humble and easy and, and, and light. And I have to ask myself, is that me? Or am I adding insult to injury? Made me think of one of my favorite Psalms, especially because I'm a driven person who can drive myself insane with unachievable expectations and unreasonable goals that just, as the worst critic of my life, I can be so hard and harsh and heavy and hard on myself. And I just want to camp out on this just for the remainder of the time today. It's actually, I think, the shortest psalm in the Bible. So if you're like, I need to memorize the whole psalm, this is a great place to start. It'll make you feel great about yourself. <laughs> and some of us need that. We just need a small win, right? It's such an amazing psalm. I actually tried to find what was David going through when he wrote it, and there's just all these ideas, but nobody really knows. But you have this sense that he didn't have a lot of energy to write much, but what he wrote was coming out of, I just don't want to be this way anymore. Psalm 133, 1 and 2, it says, My heart is not proud, Lord, and my eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Isn't that a phrase? But I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Charles Spurgeon said, it's one of the shortest psalms to read and one of the longest to learn. <laughs> I was struck with David's expression in the text. I don't concern myself. And he, he, he wrote two things, with great matters and with wonderful things. And I got to think, thinking of our world, 
and myself of great matters and wonderful things because I feel like we're ingesting and digesting awful things all day long, great matters, and awesome things all day long, which are wonderful things. And I wonder sometimes how much we can handle. In fact, the phrase came to my mind in the car that I actually dictated into the phone was this, I don't think you can care too much, but I do think you can care about too much. Just, just think about that. I don't think God's like, oh, you just care too much. I think God wants us to care very passionately. But I think there is something in us that we are caring about too much these days. Great matters that are so filled with gravity and wonderful things that we just never feel like we're ever gonna attain. And all day long, we ingest and digest this. It's just many, much more, all these superlatives just drive our life. I was thinking about just some great matters that I can be vexed with on days as I hear the news and it's just kind of coming at us, it's at our fingertips. Like there's earthquakes, you know, in Alaska and there's wildfires in California and there's accidents that happen and there's hurricanes and there's famine and there's poverty and there's persecution in the church. A hundred thousand die every year of our brothers and sisters. If you just want to think about that for a second, you're just like, ugh. 2018, 100,000 gone just because you're a Christian. Terrorism, politics. Like if you want to fast from something, just fast from watching politics for a week and you'll watch how much of a junkie you are. You like just, because we're just ingesting it great matters that we can't do anything about in some senses. That's, that's the powerless, the harassed and helpless feeling is not feeling something that you could bring a solution but carrying something that you can't touch with a 10-foot pole. You just get, get to carry it but you never get to solve it. And danger. And then I was thinking of wonderful things that I'll just like, and this is where devices are just horrible. It just shows you these wonderful things out there like people's travels and people's vacations and people's possessions and their successes and their fortunes and their money and their marriages and their friendships and their occupation and this preferred future that you have and someone else's children that are obedient. (laughs) And you're looking around you and like, my life's just a mess and... I just have great matters weighing on me and wonderful matters that I'm dreaming about and you're dreaming and you're scheming and it's just like, where's the rest? And David said, I don't concern myself with great matters or things just too wonderful for me. Not anymore. I can't handle it. I'm I'm a mere mortal. Did you know you're a mere mortal? That you have limitations? That you have a threshold? You can only have so many friends. You can only know so much stuff that you can do something about. Like we have to like throttle back and put a generator or, or not a generator, a, what the heck is it called? A governor on our lives. Like one of those golf carts. I hate those things. It's like, and I need that because I'll just keep going. 
The reason why I hate the governor is because I just want to go out on the golf course and then just be, you know, doing donuts and stuff, but it's not an ATV. It's just meant to get you to your little ball so you can have a calm golfing experience, not an off-roading experience, right? But you can feel like, I know this thing's got more in it. We need a governor. See, the great matters and the wonderful things that he said, I don't concern myself with those things anymore. Another thought I had is the constant concern about the great and wonderful is precisely what makes us sick and miserable. The more we chase more, the more we're plagued by the disease of dis-ease, discontentment. The verse says, my heart's not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I'm like, well, why does he start there? Because I think sometimes you think you're a big deal. I think the reason why we are so busy and we're trying to produce is we're trying to prove to ourselves and somebody else, our father or our fictitious father or people around us, we're in this competition or race to the bottom or the top, I don't know. And you just got to just lay aside your pride and just your eyes that are haughty going after yourself. I'm not that big of a deal. I don't have to prove that I'm important. I don't care if I take a day off and I feel useless and other people think I'm useless. God made me to Sabbath. Do I trust him or the spirit of the age? And he goes on, I don't concern myself, but he does do other things to himself. He calms himself. He quiets himself. He contents himself. I was thinking about this phrase as calming myself. It means God just doesn't come bring you calm and quiet you. You, you can't concern yourself, but you've got to quiet yourself and calm yourself. When I calm myself, it means m- me getting myself to slow down my fast-paced life. And then quieting myself is me getting myself to shut off the internal noise, which just takes everything within me, and then some. And then contenting myself, according to this text, is drawing near to God and to his heart and letting myself rest in God's providence and his goodness. God, you've provided for my life. And it's your providence and your sovereignty that I just feel like anchored to. I'm not sovereign. I'm not in control, even though I feel like it. I get close to you and I'm calmed by you like a, like a little child that's weaned next to his mother. I was in Israel several weeks back and I was there for two Sabbath days, which is really crazy. I was in Tiberias for the first Sabbath day, which is right along the Sea of Galilee, uh, right up from, you know, where the, the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount was and where Capernaum is and where Magnola was, Mary Magdalene. And, and so we were in Tiberias and, and our hotel was there. And at six o'clock on Friday night, everything shut down. And the next week in Jerusalem, this big city of Jerusalem, everything, six o'clock at night, hustle, bustle, just like here, cars are on three-lane highways and they're going back and forth and cars are just beeping their horns. It's chaos. It's Bedlam and Bethlehem baby it's just crazy six o'clock gone like the apocalypse 
It's, it was apocalyptic. You'd walk outside your hotel and you're trying to find a place to eat. All the restaurants closed down. All the cars off the road pulled into their driveways or their garages. Everything, just like the town, went to sleep in the whole country of Israel. Quiet, still, calm. People made by their government and by their religion to stop the madness. It was, it was creepy. And then I'm, I'm out there and I'm like, they have made a decision, just go with me here, to set aside and give up one-seventh of their economic gain. I did a little math in America and we have a revenue of three, I think they're projecting 3.422 trillion dollars that comes into America in the year coming up in 2019. If we took one day, one seventh away, it would be $485 billion that you're like, it's just worth it so that we can Sabbath. And to me, there are days where it's scary that I'm successful, but I don't know if I'm succeeding at things that matter. And I'm caught up in the current of culture. And until you rest and, and hit the tuning fork and get in touch with your soul and the heart of God, you might be successful but I think the greatest failure is the one who succeeds at that which does not matter and finds out too late. I've noticed for me, and this just is just getting practical, what happens inside of me that makes it hard to take a day off. Because rest can be good and constructive or very, very destructive. It can either replenish me or it can just drain me and freak me out. And I put it in just two different blocks. One thing is rest can give me a time to reflect where I feel condemnation of the enemy. And then I feel shame or guilt. And then I feel regret. And then I want to run and get busy because I just need to numb myself with busyness. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It was really great. I'm reflecting until all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I suck. But if God is with you in your rest on your day off or a time where you get away, you rest and you reflect, but you take a different fork in the road and it's different. Conviction happens and then sorrow happens, which is godly sorrow is great. And then repentance happens where it's like, God, I don't want to be this way anymore. And then healing happens and you don't get to raising your kids and then they're gone at age 18 and you find out I needed some rest so that God could show me these are the areas where things could be different and better and I'll give you strength and you can change. You don't have to just live your life this way and then come to the end and be like, ah, Sabbath has literally saved me from being a bad dad on some days because I'll let his conviction come into my soul like, your life's out of balance. The equilibrium's off. And God, when he convicts, it's different than condemnation. Condemnation is harsh. Conviction 
is this gentle, loving voice that whispers to your conscience, hey, I love you, man, but you're killing yourself. And I love you enough to tell you that. You're hurting someone else with your life. And I know you love them and you don't want to do that anymore. Let's together not be this way anymore. I'll show you another one that I have where rest goes into reflections. I can, on a bad day, rest and reflect, and then I'm reminded of something. And it re- I remember how complicated and complex something is at work or in my life, and then it adds pressure on top of the complication, and then I just go paranoid and I panic. You ever had one of those days off? And then you're like, oh, I gotta get to work. But there's another fork in the road where rest and reflection allows me to be reminded, and instead of going to my life's complicated, it just goes to the simple things, and I'm reminded of the simple, beautiful things of life, and then I'm taken to gratitude and appreciation, and then I'm given joy. And everything depends on which one of these, whether I live a panic, frenzied, uptight life, or a joyful, gracious life of gratitude. Like, tell me a a household isn't going to be different having a dad who's panicked or a dad who's filled with joy. But unless you rest, you don't let yourself even know, like, the condition of your own soul and what it's doing in a ripple effect to the life around you that you would be embarrassed of if you were illuminated to that fact. Rest is a way for us to heal I I call it the difference between a spirit of rushing and a spirit of resting. The the spirit of rushing is more, better, different, faster. This one's in my head all the time. The spirit of resting is simpler, deeper, richer, fuller. I'm like, oh God, I, I can get stirred up with more, better, different, faster. And God's like, no, but if it's resting, it's just simpler, deeper, richer, fuller. That's the life. That's a different dad. Those are two different husbands. These are two different pastors. Like we just had our staff like dinner last night and I was just thinking, man, so much depends on the condition of my spirit because that bleeds over and spills over And if I have this anxious presence, that creates anxious presence, that creates anxious presence. And all of a sudden, our whole culture is just one of anxiety. If I have a legalistic presence, that comes out. If I have a gracious presence, a joyful presence, a lighthearted, easygoing, gentle, humble, restful presence, that is felt. The power of of Sabbathing and resting to me is more than just taking a break. It gives me space to think about my thoughts. And this is where we talked about this a couple weeks ago, where you take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Uh, Some thoughts I actually have to release from captivity that I have said, go sit in the corner and point to the corner. And I'm like, that's my real self. And I've held that captive and I got to set it free. And ones that I've been letting run free and a free for all, I got to take captive. 
well, I got to think about my thoughts. When am I going to do that? When I break away and get away. I mean, Jesus said he often withdrew to a lonely place. Often. It's like, well, Jesus needed that. I don't. I'm way better than he is. Are you kidding me? He even said, no servant is greater than his master. Like, if I need this, you need this. If I just have it up to here with people and I got to get away just to get with God to be refreshed and restored, you need it too. And so I collect my thoughts. I call this time of centering, collecting my thoughts or gathering my thoughts. If I don't have time to do that, they billow and, and lies can, can just be believable over time inside of me. The craziest thoughts, just talk to my wife. When I don't Sabbath for a while, I just start talking and she's like, what are you talking about? You're totally off. That is not even true. That is, that is just jacked up. And I'm like, well, it feels true. Well, here's what I've noticed in our culture. Again, I'm just making this up. This isn't the gospel truth, but I've noticed that what people feel is immediately what is true. And when I get into a time of rest, what I feel has to go through what I think, and what I think has to go through what I believe, and then what I believe actually cranks out the action of what is true. You can't bypass from feelings to truth. What you feel may not be real. So you need to go from feel to think to belief system to truth. I don't know how people do that on the fly, shift and without a clutch. Like, you got to stop and say, is that feeling a thought? And I got to put that thought through my belief system before I make the accident of letting that come out of my mouth and become my life. So on my day off, I collect thoughts. I could be sawing wood. I could be just outside taking a walk. I just could be inside laying on the couch just doing nothing for the glory of God like he did on the seventh day. He didn't create a blessed thing. He just was like, I'm God. I'm just going to take a break. Just check out what I made, enjoy it, chill, and do nothing. I think people should do this too. I think I'm going to throw this into the Ten Commandments. It's the only commandment we break that we don't feel guilty about. So I collect my thoughts. You want some of my thoughts on my day off? I went through, I, I just type them into my phone wherever I am. Here's just some of these thoughts. And these thoughts can literally rearrange and change the present of how I am as a dad or a person, the quality of my life. One thought I read in my phone was, confluence is the best path to influence. There is nothing like a team win. Like I, I need to be with people. Where did that come from? I remember where I was. I had just fell a big cherry tree out in the woods. This was another one. I would much rather be grateful than great. And when I wake up, I'm like, man, if I could just live a life of gratitude rather than greatness, that's a good life. 
When you stop obeying God's voice, it won't be long before you stop hearing God's voice, Jay. I was hauling a pallet out in the woods. I'm grateful that God seemed to gravitate to passion more than perfection as he chose people to use in the Bible. People who said, why me, not pick me. I've noticed the people who make history create the future by changing the present. Like we all wanna leave a legacy. You know how you leave a legacy? You enact change in the present that creates the future that makes history. Don't thank God for someone without finding a way to somehow tell them about it. Encouragement that isn't shared didn't happen. Had that thought on my day off. Life's not about getting attention, Jay. It's about paying attention. I feel most satisfied when I'm most sanctified. A good heart produces a good life. This one was a big one. Love, don't shove. I've never seen someone transform via force. And that just was like, as a dad, love your kids toward obedience. Don't shove them. Don't shove your congregation. Love your con congregation. Don't shove the world. Love the world. Just that Sabbath. This is the byproduct of Sabbath. There are days when it seems that all the human heart is looking for is a safe person to be oneself with. I was probably really melancholy that day. But I'm like, all I need is one person to be myself with. There's no comfort like knowing there are people who will love me unconditionally even if I fail spectacularly. There was just a day where I think probably I was vexed with like, what if everything falls apart? What if I make a wrong decision? The dominoes go down and I lose my house and I just don't, can't pay the mortgage and I just have to declare bankruptcy and it just hit me like, so what if that did happen? You have a bunch of people that will love you. Oh yeah, I can fail spectacularly and I have a lot of people that love me unconditionally. But you don't believe that on some days. You think you're all alone, and if you fail, it's over. And I'll just share one more. If the devil can't take me out, he'll wear me out or burn me out. These are things on my day off. And you're like, well, I just, you take a day off, you just sort of sit there and just do this artsy-fartsy-like stuff all day long. Yeah, sort of. But I it hit me, I rest, and I put this up on the screen, I rest so that I can risk. Like I Sabbath so I can sacrifice. I shut down so I can show up. Like I go off the grid for a day so that by the time I hit the next day, I am full of vim and vigor and I'm ready to hit life by faith, not fear. But if I don't have that day of rest, it starts caving in. I, I just kept thinking about that high priestly prayer from Numbers to pray over you today. Some people use it as a benediction before a group of people leave, and I just can't get enough of it. 
because it reminds me of Matthew 11 when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. The, the priests would literally look at the congregation, these sheep without a shepherd, maybe harassed and helpless, violated and vulnerable, and the priest would just lift his hands over and just say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Go with that spirit, right? And so we're just gonna sing a song real quick and it's somewhat a benediction for our church. We haven't sung it for a while. It's shine on us, which kind of comes from this, like let your face shine on us. The, the idea of shining is his countenance is smiling on us. And that he's a father that is up above us and loving us and smiling down upon us and said, this is my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Calm down. Shh, it's gonna be okay. Just rest. Just rest. So why don't you stand up? We're gonna sing Shine on Us as we leave today. Mm -hmm.